repeat that. The, the number of defaults in AAA CLOs going back 30 years is actually zero. And think of all the stress times we've had over the last 30 years. That will tell you, you know, like no model is perfect, right? Um, calibration is never perfect. But that, that basically tells you that the models that you know, the rating agencies are using and, and the risk pricing that money managers and banks are doing is actually working as expected. And, and so investors should take some comfort in that. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello, and welcome to IBKR Podcasts. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers and your host for today's program. We'll be speaking with John Kirshner, Head of U.S. Securitized Products at Janice Henderson, about his insights into the collateralized loan obligation, or CLO market. Welcome, John. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's a terrific topic. You know, earlier this year, there have been some reports, you know, essentially said uh, increased inflation, which is what we seem to be experiencing, rising rates, also what we're experiencing, were beneficial to stoking appetite for CLOs. And there have been more novel strategies. It seems that they've been emerging on the back of the passage of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. I believe that passed this mid-November 2021. These concerned real estate and project finance. So these are brand new types of CLOs. However, I understand that there are also some analysts that have recently lowered their expectations for CLO issuance for this year, for 2022. And this has been amid wider AAA spreads and declining leveraged loan offerings from the prior year. And I would just love to know what's happening in this space. It's been years since I've really looked at it. But I suppose the first question (laughs) that would be helpful for those not entirely familiar with what CLOs are or or what any of this language really means is, what are CLOs? What what exactly are these products? They sound like CDOs, right? I remember those, but what are are CLOs? Yeah, these are... Are, are completely different from CDOs, and we can talk about the difference uh, as we go on. But yeah, CLOs, as you define them, uh, collateralized loan obligations, they're a securitization, um, just like any other securitization out there. For example, um, very common securitizations are made out of auto loans or student loans or credit card uh, loans. And so what a securitization is, is simply taking a pool of loans and uh, putting them together and then dividing up the cash flows into different layers of risk. So trip, something that got AAA rated would be obviously the lowest amount of risk at the top of the capital stack, as we like to say. Yep. And it goes all the way down, AA, single A, triple B, and then below investment grade and even an equity or residual tranche. So, uh, yeah, they, they can be confusing to investors out there, but what you should really just know is instead of investing in the individual loans, you can invest in a very diversified pool of these loans. And then the best thing for investors, you can choose the amount of risk that you want to take, either very little risk in a AAA tranche or much more risk if you went down the capital stack. And these are corporate loans. These are pools of corporate loans. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So like I said, usually if you think about auto loans 
or, or, or student loans or credit card loans, those are obviously consumer loans. Yeah. The big difference with uh, CLOs is you're taking a pool of leverage loans or bank loans, which are two names for the same thing, yeah. but it's basically corporate loans. That's correct. And just to, to clarify, because I know that there was a huge question mark in terms of how the different tranches of, say, a CDO was rated. Uh, you had a AAA rating, but that didn't necessarily mean that that tranche represented the highest investment grade type of credit that you would be investing in. The underlying collateral, these risky loans, are at base rated at least double B plus. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And I just want to be very clear that the real difference with CDOs and CLOs. So yep. CDOs were made up of subprime mortgages, very slim, slim tranches, usually triple B rated. Now, the problem with subprime mortgages is that the rating agency models were calibrated to a housing market that never went negative. And the reason for that was because it had never happened since the depression. So the rating agency models use data from obviously past um, cycles. And because the housing market as a whole in the US had never gone negative during a year, their models just didn't take that into consideration or, or made it as a very um, kind of outsized case. So when that actually did happen in, in the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, these very thin uh, or very slim tranches of subprime mortgage risk basically went to zero. So anything that was created from them, uh, namely these AAA CDOs, if, if they didn't go to zero, they went very low um, in dollar price and, and a lot of them defaulted over that time. The nice thing about CLOs is that leverage loans have been around since the 1980s. Um, the default models for corporate credit go back, you know, over 100 years. And so the models have a lot more data and a lot better calibration. And so things like the GFC, not only did leverage loans um, perform decently, obviously there were defaults because it was a very stressful time in the markets, but even CLOs perform pretty much as expected. And so that's the real difference between CLOs and CDOs. I think it's fascinating to look at products that seem so similar in terms of their makeup or constitution, in a sense, and see that CLOs were more resilient in their performance over the great financial crisis or the, the great recession. We'll come back to that because I think that it's really worth looking at CLOs in terms of the risks that they pose and the benefits that they pose. And so in light of that, who invests in these? Who are the investors behind it and why would they invest in CLOs? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, pretty much any um, institutional investor that invests in fixed income will also invest in CLOs. So at the top of the capital stack, the AAA tranche, you're seeing um, US banks about 30%. Japanese banks are huge buyers. They own about 18% of that market. And money managers own about a third of it. And insurance companies about 19%. And the total AAA market is about six to 700 billion. So it's it's literally hundreds of billions that these different investors are buying in the middle of the capital stack. So that would be 
uh, double A, single A, and triple B. It's mostly money managers and insurance companies, about 50-50 there. And then when you go down to the below investment grade or equity tranches, it's basically about 90% hedge funds and, and maybe 10% of money managers. And, and to answer your question is why they buy them. Look, um, fixed income investments, um, the Gret, the the vast majority of them, about 95%, actually do have fixed coupon income. That means you buy a bond, you get your coupon income either semi-annually or monthly, and then at maturity, you get your principal back. And that fixed coupon income never changes. That's why when rates go up, bond prices go down and vice versa. Um, Floating rate securities, which is a very much smaller part of the fixed income markets, Uh, The coupon income actually changes as the Fed raises rates up or down. So right now, a lot of investors are very attracted to floating rate instruments, um, mostly CLOs and leveraged loans. There are a few other niche markets that are floating rate, but that's that's the vast majority of floating rate uh, debt in the U.S., and they want to buy those because obviously the Fed continues to raise interest rates. They probably will continue to raise interest rates more this year and maybe even to 2023. And that means as they do that, your coupon income continues to reset up. So instead of being a headwind as the Fed raises interest rates, it's actually a tailwind. And that's obviously very attractive to investors. So this is basically why I'm reading that rising inflation and and higher rates are, are spurring this appetite. That makes a lot of sense to me now. But now I'm also seeing that it looks like maybe in June, and maybe the situation has changed, that there perhaps had been fewer deals made in the leveraged loan space. It looks like spreads had widened on the back of this for the AAA tranche. I'm not sure if that's still the case or whether sentiment in the primary market for leveraged loans has changed. Yeah, actually, um, issuance in the leveraged loan market is down dramatically this year, down about 67%. Wow year to date. And and that's mostly from the dislocation we've seen this year, you know, coming from Ukraine and then continuing on as just the market became more nervous about inflation and the Fed interest rate hikes. Interestingly enough, CLO issuance is only down about 10 percent so far this year, as many managers have uh, continued to issue just because demands uh, has remained relatively high. Now, you know, CLOs, um, particularly a AAA tranche, has not been immune to widening as general fixed income spreads have widened. Um, that, that should almost go without saying. That being said, uh, the demand um, continues for AAA uh, CLO tranches, principally for the reasons that we've de- described. They're very high credit quality. The liquidity is in- incredibly strong. Um, and and um, that the investors want that higher coupon income as the Fed raises interest rates. One interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people would would know about is that the two largest months for trading in the AAA CLO space were number one, March of 2020, and number two, March of 2022. So incredibly dislocated, very difficult markets. A lot of other fixed income markets either completely shut down or for all intents and purposes shut down. At the same time, AAA CLOs actually increased their trading Mm -hmm. amount in liquidity. And and we look at that as a very positive 
point for for investing in AAA is because if you want to trade them, either buy them or sell them, you are able to do the do so even in very difficult markets. It was interesting during that time, especially during the lockdowns and certain industries, say, for example, the hotel industry, you had companies like Marriott getting essentially no occupancy or zero occupancy rate globally, it seemed. And yet they were able to come to market during that time. This is an investment grade company with a bond that got fairly, it was overbooked, uh, if you know, forgive the pun, but it did really well. And I thought that that was very interesting that corporate bond investors were keen to still grab for yield and grab debt, regardless of what the fundamental backdrop looked like. There was support for the corporate bond market, it seemed, by the Fed at the time. And I believe that they were, I think, for the first time, actually entering the market to buy fixed income instruments to keep that market liquid. So I wonder if that has anything to do with the riskier loans or whether they enjoyed the same kinds of benefits of a more liquid corporate bond market to support the CLO issuance. Yeah, it's, it, those are all great points even. And um, what was so unique about COVID was obviously just the global economy shutting down. I think the Fed, to their credit, understood very quickly that not only did they have to come in quickly with support, but very large support to the financial markets. They, they kind of made that mistake in the GFC that they didn't come in quickly enough nor, nor large enough. And so it took longer for the financial markets to recover. If you remember, it was, it was actually mid-2007 when we started to see the yeah. cracks yeah. And, and the markets didn't really bottom to, till March of 2009. In this case, um, very different. The Fed came in, like I said, with support. They did start buying investment grade corporate credit. They even, the Fed said they, they may buy um, some high yield corporate credit ETFs. They, were, they had the capability to do that. Yeah. And so basically what investors were doing is saying, look, we know this, um, this pandemic's not gonna last forever. Can a firm like Marriott last for the year or maybe two years it's going to take in order to come out the other side? And so investors actually felt confident that with the Fed backing these markets, that um, they, they could buy their debt of, of very solid companies like Marriott and that Marriott would come out the other side. And, you know, quite frankly, um, yeah, Marriott was able to do a deal, was oversubscribed, but it was at very wide spreads. Um, you know, instead of maybe the low hundreds, it was probably three or four hundred. So that's really what was going on right there. And, and, and credit to the Fed for kind of understanding what was going on and supporting the markets. It was certainly a, a very different landscape, a very different time. Interesting to still see these deals getting done, even at the worst of times, it seems. But if we turn our attention, though, to the products themselves, the CLOs versus CDOs. And I know you gave us a great case in terms of the model calibrations with the ratings agencies and otherwise to come up with AAA, B investment grade types of ratings for the tranches that are the debt tranches, maybe not necessarily for the equity tranche or the lowest level tranche that experiences the brunt, I suppose, of losses when companies or loans or the underlying collateral starts to default. So I understand basically if you're a holder of these, you are going to experience losses on them only if, if you're holding, say, the MES tranche, which would be the middle tranche or the 
the AAA tranche, you're going to experience losses if the lower tranches become depleted or defaulted up, right? So the equity tranche experiences all the possible defaults it can before it goes to zero. And then if there's more losses, it then starts to creep up the the ladder, the structured ladder. Uh, this, is what I, right. this is what I understand. So let's talk a little bit about how the loss models, I suppose, if you will, or the performance models or the credit pricing models work. I know that might be a big thing to really discuss here, given the scope of the conversation. But at a time when a lot of the CDOs, say back in 2008, were being calculated for losses, there wasn't a mark to market, it seemed. It seemed like there was a mark to model. So there was a, some kind of difficulty or challenge to actually find the prices on them during that time, depending on how the model was structured. It's still kind of a mystery to me a bit, even having studied a bit of what these credit pricing models were. But is the way that, say, losses are calculated, the, the probabilities of default and this kind of quantitative analysis, is it the same for CLOs when you want to assess your risk on them? The same as you would with a CDO? Has, have the models changed? Well, the models have, yeah, the models have changed. Um, absolutely. Okay. I mean, um, any rating agency or, or, you know, money manager, anybody that's trying to price the risk continuously updates their model as we go through different, you know, different cycles, different business cycles, different dislocations like the GFC or, or, or COVID. What, what's key to remember, and I think this is a massive um, differentiation between CLOs and CDOs, is CLOs are backed by loans, which, yes, loans will occasionally default. On average, about 3% of loans default a year. Actually, currently, only about 1% are defaulting, and we think that'll go up to 2 maybe 2 and a half next year. But it's still a very conducive environment for credit and, and loan defaults are actually quite low, but they do happen. But the nice thing about loans is most of them are collateralized by, by some kind of collateral. And so when a loan defaults, you don't get zero money back, right? Traditionally, your recovery on loans because of the, the collateral that backs them is 60 to 70 cents on the dollar. Now that went down during COVID to more like 50 cents or even 40 cents on the dollar. But somewhere in that range between, let's just call it 40 cents and 60 cents is what you get back. So it's not a complete loss for the investor. And that's why the CLO holders, particularly at the capital stack um, at the AAA um, are so well protected because you can basically default 70 or 80% of the loans, but assuming a 50, a 50 cent or 60 cent recovery value on those, all that recovery value would go to pay the AAA. Now, again, in CDOs, you were, you were building AAA bonds with triple B subprime loans, and those basically had zero recovery value because it was such a small tranche. In, in the subprime mortgages that were issued. And so um, that's why the AAA's um, CDOs had such a difficult time, so many defaulted. And while AAA CLOs, we've never had a default. Uh, repeat that, the, the number of defaults in AAA CLOs going back 30 years is actually zero. And think of all the stress times we've had over the last 30 years. That will tell you, you know, like no model is perfect, right? 
Um, calibration is never perfect, but that that basically tells you that the models that you know the rating agencies are using and and the risk pricing that money managers and banks are doing is actually working as expected, and and so investors should take some comfort in that. If you hold a piece of a CLO, let's say you hold the AAA tranche of a CLO or a piece of that, let's say some fantastic situation occurs and you experience a default. If I hold the loan itself outright, if I went and I invested via a prospectus on a loan, which probably is going to be a hard bet because these are leveraged loans and not quite uh, high yield corporate bonds, but I would have recourse if I was a holder of a corporate bond, right? But if I'm a holder of a yep. CLO, I still have recourse. I suppose it's not necessarily a manager like an issuing entity that I could go to like you know, an AMC theater, for example, and, and go right. to AMC and say, hey, I'm a bondholder so I can collect in bankruptcy or something if that happened to them. But I'm holding a CLO. Yeah. So, so how does that work? So, yeah. So look, you know, no individual investor is is going to ever go to bankruptcy court and and, and try to recover assets if, if they're invested in a uh, you know let's just say they're invested in a leveraged loan ETF, right? Nor would they want to do that if they're invested in a CLO ETF. So what happens is if there is a default. Look, there's a there's a set process. Bankruptcy court is very well defined in the United States. We have a rule of law here. And so the um, the investors like Janice Henderson would be going to court on behalf of the individual investors that you know bought our fund or bought our ETF. And so it, it, it does not behoove individual investors to actually invest in individual leverage loans because of that very reason yep, yep. you just it's too much it's too much bother and and really Stephen, it, it just comes down to the fact that that's why you know investors um need to hire people like janice henderson or other money managers um at, with active management because we are you know spending hours and hours every day pricing this risk investing in, in leverage loans clos that we think um, have good under underlying fundamentals in that, you know, like I said, yep. uh, inevitably some firms will go bankrupt, but that's why you have a diversified portfolio um, to offset that. And that's why you get paid more risk to go to to go into those securities. Does yeah. that help clarify that? No, it completely does. I hate it when I buy something and I can't call somebody if I have questions about it, for example. Uh, where it seems like I, I just hit some automated machine that guides me through, uh, you know, 10,000 different options right. that, you know, I never get to talk right. to somebody and all the while I'm just want to make it work. So this makes a lot of sense to me. This is great. I just wanted to kind of go through the current situation that we're experiencing because there seems to be a, obviously a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility. And I know in 2020, we experienced a, a great deal of retailers defaults, I think some energy companies as well, and several sectors, I think most sectors, uh, business sectors of the economy, experienced default rates that were above their long-term averages. And I think it was, a, I think, almost 200 speculative-grade companies, according, I believe, to S&P, who experienced defaults in 2020. And so, you know, now we've had a couple of quarters of negative growth. We've got inflation still fairly high. Uh, we've got a lot of geopolitical tensions. We've got Yes, the rising rates uh, may uh, help the technicals, I suppose, of the attraction 
for bondholders to want to come in and, and purchase CLOs. But more on the fundamental side, and I know you talked about default rates, maybe 2% next year. Do you think that we could experience something as cataclysmic as the Great Recession if there were multiple defaults happening at one time? And I think that there was an article published by The Atlantic. I believe it was a UC Berkeley law professor, Frank Partnoy, and he wrote about the looming bank collapse, and he really put a spotlight on CLOs. And this was, this was I think, in the midst of 2020 that this came out. And he's, he's really saying, I believe, that nobody could have accounted for simultaneous defaults or that correlation default that happened with um, CDOs. And I think you mentioned it earlier about the models. But could we experience something fundamentally similar within the next, say, few years? Yeah, I, I read that article. I've read it several times, and uh, it, it came out during a very scary time in the markets, obviously, because COVID was in full swing. We, we didn't have the vaccines yet or anything. But he, he makes some good points, but his conclusions are very far off. And, and look, this is a gentleman, obviously very learned, but he hasn't worked in the finance industry for you know going on 30 years now. So I don't know anybody that would any kind of industry where you take someone that's been out of it for 30 years and look to them as as being an expert. And and one point, good point he does make is that many models that the rating agencies use are over relying on diversification. And what I mean by that is they look at, like you said, different industries, different issuers of leveraged loans. And they say, well, look, you know, Different industries cycle at different times. Healthcare might be doing well at one point, tech not so well, vice versa. Um, so that uh, when you get a, a circumstance like the global financial crisis, when everything does badly, their, their models start to break down a bit for sure. The problem is he takes it to the extreme and saying that, look, because 13,000, that's the number he used, CDO, AAA CDOs defaulted, and that he used these terms that CLOs are both remarkably alike and similarly risky, that in another dislocation that was similar to the GFC, that CLOs, could, AAA CLOs could start to default. Well, my pushback would be, yes, you correct, 13,000 AAA CDOs did default during that time for the reasons I mentioned, but zero, and again, I repeat, the number was zero, AAA CLOs defaulted. So how can you call those similarly risky? It just makes no yep. sense. And so he comes up with this scenario where, you know, you start to have cracks in the system and that, you know, leverage loan issuers start to default. And as that happens, it comes this negative feedback loop where more and more defaults, and that could eventually you know, feed its way up the capital structure and that AAA CLOs would default. Well, first of all, the Fed is not gonna let that happen. Now, you, you shouldn't say, well, the market shouldn't rely on the Fed. I 100% agree with that. But um, if, and just for context, during the GFC, about the worst year for leverage loans defaults was about seven or eight percent, and the worst month was about 14 percent. And to default a triple A CLO, you need about 80 percent of the leverage loans to default. So you're talking, 
you know, four, five, six times worse than GFC. And, and for your younger listeners, that was an incredibly scary time. There were people in our industry that uh, were going to the bank and taking out thousands of dollars worth of cash because they were worried their ATMs were going to shut down and their credit cards weren't going to work. People really thought the global financial system could implode. Yeah. Um, no one's worried about that now. So my problem with that article was he was just taking it to its extreme. And can I come up with scenarios, you know, global nuclear war, asteroid hits the earth? Sure. But but, you know, that's not finance, right? We'll have a lot of other things to worry about if those things happen. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and in that scenario, stocks are going to be down 90 percent. You know, uh, you know, uh, high yield bonds are going to be trading at 20 cents on a dollar. You know, that the the problem is unless you're buying, you know, guns and ammo and gold and, 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 and can't take any risk whatsoever, then, yeah, maybe you listen to that kind of scenario, but yep. it is proven over the 30 years that have been around that triple, CL, triple A CLOs are one of the safest sectors of the market out there. And, and we believe that will continue to be the case. I mean, we're constantly doing our due diligence, but, yep. but the, you know, the numbers prove it. Yes, you would have to consider very, very worst case scenarios. An entire sector goes out of business where all the speculative grade credits implode at the same time. And, you know, you can come up, yes, with these kinds of what if scenarios. If this were to happen, would it be cataclysmic? The likelihood of all, say, energy companies going out of business because there's a forced transition towards renewable energies and all of a sudden there's a blanket ban on all fossil fuels. And I suppose something like that could happen, but the chances of it, you know, happening in terms of its disruption to the marketplace and perhaps killing a great deal of CLO holders at the same time, I think that that would probably be taken into consideration, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and let me just make one point on that. Um, yep. So investors realize this. The reason why you want a securitization is because there are all these limits as far as how concentrated portfolios can be. So this gets back to diversification. And again, uh, to your point, you you don't want to solely rely on diversification. But to take your example, like most CLOs only have a two or three percent exposure to energy. So literally every energy leveraged loan could default. And you're still only looking at losses of, of a few percent that would hurt the equity tranche. And, and that's it. Uh, even the single B tranche uh, uh, or a double B tranche wouldn't be affected at that point. Now, if that happened, obviously spreads would wider. Maybe it has secondary effects and things like that. But the diversification as far as industry and issuer is in the securitization to protect investors from that very remote, but, you know, maybe potential eventuality, I would say it's, it wouldn't happen, but, you know, you never know. And that's why they're structured the way they are to protect investors from something like that. Well, I'm, I'm glad I brought it up just to get that response. So thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely. <laughs> John, this has been really, really terrific. And I know there's a lot of other things going on in the CLO market, and I hope you'll come back and, and join us again, maybe discuss those as well. I know the NAIC, I think, has a proposal out there for increasing risk-based capital on the tranches. Anyway, it'd be great to talk about that. If you'd come back, I think that'd be great. 
Uh, it'd be my pleasure, Stephen. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, same here. Same here. Thank you so much. And you can read more market commentary, analysis, and insights from Janice Henderson and IBKR Traders Insight at tradersinsight.news. They also have lots of fascinating articles there with some recent topics that delve into market volatility, biopharma research, the semiconductor sector, and more. Uh, and until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Alternative investments can be highly illiquid or speculative and may not be suitable for all investors. Investing in alternative investments is only for experienced and sophisticated investors who have a high risk tolerance. Investors should carefully review and consider potential risks before investing. Significant risks may include but are not limited to the loss of all or a portion of an investment due to leverage, lack of liquidity, volatility of returns, restrictions on transferring of interests in a fund, lower diversification, complex tax structures, reduced regulation, and higher fees. Any discussion or mention of an ETF is not to be construed as recommendation, promotion, or solicitation. All investors should review and consider associated investment risks, charges, and expenses of the investment company or fund prior to investing. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.